This is Guns and Butter. The question of personhood or who gets to assert rights has been at the very core of most of the fundamental social movements in this country. It matters. It matters a great deal. And our entire history, at least in the United States, has been a struggle around how to define and answer that question. Who gets to assert rights and what does it look like when they do? This is really important. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, David Cobb. Today's show, End Corporate Rule, Move to Amend. David Cobb is an activist and attorney and was the 2004 Green Party presidential candidate. He is the National Projects Director of Democracy Unlimited and is the principal spokesperson for Move to Amend. Move to Amend is proposing a 28th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which states in part that the rights protected by the Constitution of the United States are the rights of natural persons only, and that the judiciary shall not construe the spending of money to influence elections to be speech under the First Amendment. I caught up with David Cobb in Ukiah, California, on October 27th, where he gave a Move to Amend workshop on behalf of Mendocino County's Measure F. Measure F will instruct state and federal representatives to pass an amendment to the Constitution abolishing corporate personhood. David Cobb. So I want to thank everyone for being here. It's really my great pleasure to be here in Mendocino County, where y'all really are on the cutting edge of the movement to actually assert democratic control over the entity known as the corporation. And what could be more appropriate than a citizen's initiative uh, called Measure F, so that we get to say, do we want real democracy? F, yes! All right. So I'm really honored and proud to be here. I want to give a big shout out to Bonnie and KPFA Radio, People's Radio. Let's just be clear, non-corporately filtered news information and analysis. The One of the few places that we, the people, have to actually talk to one another. So this presentation is going to be a framing presentation around the key issues associated with the Move to Amend Coalition, how we've proceeded, and then we'll do a, a strategy session immediately after that. So when I give presentations, I like to start off by saying that I consider myself a proud, a patriotic, and these days a pissed off American citizen. Yeah, you can applaud that, I mean, you can, uh, right? And, and I want to be clear, uh, I also consider myself a political progressive. And as a political progressive, I think we've made a mistake by allowing the Tea Party and the right to claim some sort of monopoly on political anger. Because if you actually talk to a Tea Party supporter, and I've done this time and time again, what you'll find is what they're really angry about is the fact that the big banksters and Wall Street destroyed the economy, but what really sent them over the edge is when these same banksters and economic thugs got a trillion dollars of our tax money uh, as a bailout. Well, you know what? I'm angry about that too, aren't you? Yeah. Right? We as progressives are angry about it too, and we make a mistake if we allow the Tea Party to be the only place where that political, political anger is expressed. Because as a political progressive, I will also go one step further and say, I'm also angry about the fact that one in six American families are living below the poverty level and I don't hear that anger expressed by Tea Party supporters. I'm angry about the fact that one in four American children are going to bed hungry or undernourished 
in the richest country the world has ever produced. And I don't hear that anger expressed at Tea Party rallies. And I'm angry about the fact that the social, political, and economic institutions are destroying the planet that we depend upon for life itself and creating a racist, sexist, and class-oppressive society with the plunder. And I certainly don't hear that anger expressed at Tea Party rallies. And folks, the anger I'm sharing with you, the anger that you clearly share with me by your nonverbal reaction to my words, let's just acknowledge that anger is a righteous anger. Yeah. And I use that word very specifically. Look, I'm the grandson of a Baptist preacher. I know what the word righteous means. And to that end, I want to be clear that righteous anger is unique. You see, if you get angry because you don't get your way, that ain't righteous. Righteous anger can only be provoked by anger at injustice, oppression, exploitation. Those are incredibly important distinctions. And even further than that, if you get angry at injustice, oppression, and exploitation, and all you do is stew and wallow in your anger, that's not righteous either. Righteous anger requires action. You get angry at the injustice, and then it propels you to act. And saying it that way, let's just acknowledge that it was righteous anger that provoked the abolitionist movement in this country. They were angry at an unjust, depraved institutions, and they acted. It was righteous anger that brought those women together at Seneca Falls who were angry at a patriarchal system that was systematically oppressing and demeaning them, and they acted. Righteous anger provoked the trade union movement. Righteous anger was behind the civil rights movement. Righteous anger is a good thing. And what's amazing about righteous anger is that when you allow that righteous anger and injustice to well up within you, when you allow it to provoke you into action to change that situation, it puts you into contact with other people who share that emotion, and then something miraculous happens because your anger becomes transformed into genuine joy. Because you are acting on behalf of the best instincts that you have as a human being. And you find yourself acting with other people. And it becomes a wonderful, joyous experience. It's one of the few ways that you can actually, literally change an emotional state from a negative to a positive by allowing yourself to be appropriately angry at injustice. Righteous anger is certainly a good thing. And let's just be clear. One of the things we're angry about is the fact that we do not live in the country that most of us were taught we lived in. Because I was taught that I lived in a functioning democratic republic where we the people were sovereign and we ruled. And part of the reason I'm angry is because I grew up and realized I had been lied to. But you know, that's a harsh way to say it. So instead of saying I was lied, let's say I'd been subjected to a creation death. And the reason I want to say it that way is, is two. Number one, I think it's more accurate but even deeper, I actually have a voice that I connect that creation myth. I have a name that I can share with you. For me, personally, that name, Mrs. Armstrong. She was my fifth grade teacher. In other words, Mrs. Armstrong did not go to bed at night saying, I can't wait till these children come into my classroom. I'm going to fill their mind full of lies and propaganda. And their little dogs, too. No. Mrs. Armstrong was a public teacher, and like every public teacher I've ever met, she became a teacher because she wanted to inspire and assist and nurture children to become productive members of society. You see, Mrs. Armstrong taught that creation myth because she believed it, and it worked on me, it worked on my classmates, 
And as I'm watching how you're reacting to my words, it worked on all of you, whoever your Mrs. Armstrong was. See, that creation myth works on us because we want to believe it. I want to be clear. We want to live in liberty, justice, and equality. And I'll go you one better. It's our birthright. We deserve it. And let's just be very candid. American children want and deserve liberty, justice, and equality as their birthright. No doubt about it. But it's not because they are Americans. It's because they're human beings. Yeah. Right? See, the point I'm making is it is a time in history that we really have to acknowledge what is happening because what is happening is a crisis. And I mean that specifically. There's an ecological crisis. There's a social justice crisis. There's an economic crisis. There are a series of cascading crises that are happening right now that if we don't do something about are going to literally change the way human beings and life itself happens on this planet. It's a big deal, y'all. And I don't want you to get too upset, though, because I hasten to remind you that in the Chinese language, the symbol for crisis is also the symbol for another concept. Opportunity. Opportunity. The reality is the crisis that we're facing presents us with an opportunity unlike many other human beings have actually had which is the possibility that we might actually transform the entire social, political, economic institutions in which we're living to transition into a peaceful, just, democratic, and sustainable way of being. Yeah? Isn't that phenomenal? And in order to achieve that, let's just acknowledge that we're going to have to learn to be very persuasive. Not just when we talk to each other, but when we go out into the body politic and just engage people at pool halls and bowling alleys and laundromats and in our day-to-day -day lives, right? We have to learn to be persuasive. And so, since I really want to be persuasive, I want to share with you something that I learned and I knew intuitively when I was a, a successful trial lawyer, but now scientists are proving beyond a shadow of a doubt. And it's this. If you want to be persuasive, facts don't matter so much. Oh my gosh. Listen, y'all, the first time I heard that, I thought, this is terrible. Right? Because you kind of think that if you just learn to present facts cogently, that everybody will see what we see and we'll just make change that way. But then I had the good privilege to come across the work of George Lakoff, who's a cognitive scientist at UC Berkeley. And he actually has proven scientifically that the way the human brain works, that the actual structure of the brain, how we process information, how we think, what he says is, we don't actually make sense of the world through application of logic and facts. We make sense of the world through the stories we tell each other. And the stories that we hear and the stories that make sense to us become the narrative frame by which we see all of the world. And so then, anytime I or you, see it's not just them, it's we human beings, have a frame, how we see the world. and. So I'll just use myself as an example. I have a frame, how I see the world. And then, anytime I'm presented with new facts, I process that new fact in light of my pre-existing understanding of the world, in light of my existing story. And so, since I want to be persuasive, and since I know that human beings understand the world through stories, I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to tell a story on how it came to be that large transnational corporations are not just exercising power, I'm going to tell a story on how it came to be that large transnational corporations are ruling us. As surely as masters once ruled slaves, as surely as kings once ruled subjects, unelected and unaccountable corporate CEOs are ruling us. 
because they are making the fundamental public policy decisions. Corporate CEOs decide how much poison will be in the water we drink or the air we breathe. Corporate CEOs decided what kind of transportation choices you were going to have today. Corporate CEOs have already decided what kind of health care you'll get, or for many of us, what health care we won't get, even if we need it. Corporate CEOs make all of the fundamental decisions, including whether this country goes to war. And we, the people, are left to choose between paper or plastic at the grocery store. We get to choose between Coke and Pepsi. We have a myriad number of consumer choices, and I'm glad there are consumer choices. Don't get me wrong. But do not mistake a consumer choice for a material good with the same thing as exercising political power. They're different. And since I'm going to tell a story, I also want to be transparent about two things. One as I tell this story, I challenge you to ask, is this a story that only progressives could hear and react to positively? Or is this a story that cuts across political ideologies? Is this a story that cuts across traditional political boundaries? Is this a story that cuts across traditional political affiliations? Is this a uniquely American story? Or is it a story that everybody can actually get behind? Because if it's the latter, then we're really onto something that can transcend the existing political situation that we're in, and we can really build alliances that are way beyond what typically we've seen, at least within my lifetime. The second thing I'm going to do as I tell this story is to be very transparent and say, I'm going to cover four key concepts through the story. The first concept I'm going to cover is the word democracy. That word gets tossed around a lot in the United States, so I'm going to ask to make sure we've got some common ground. From what language does the word democracy derive? Greek. It's Greek. Uh, very good. Let's break it down. Demos means? People. The people. And kratia means? Anybody know? Exactly. Rule by. So literally, the word democracy means the people rule. Quick pop quiz. Who believes we, the people, are ruling in the United States today? Raise your hand. Look at that. One hand goes up. That's interesting, so we'll come back to it. But the point is, I ask this question all across the country. Sometimes I give this presentation in the afternoon and the evening. I'll give this presentation over 150 times by the end of this year. I ask that question everywhere I go, and almost nobody raises their hands. It is rare to see anyone raise their hands. And that, my friends, is a problem. But saying it another way, I think it's a good thing. It's not good that we the people don't rule, but I think it's a good thing that people are not raising their hands to that question. I think it's a good thing that we're being courageous enough and honest enough to confront reality, which is notwithstanding what Mrs. Armstrong and our culture teaches us about this country, there is in fact a small ruling elite that are actually making these fundamental public policy decisions and that our sacred right to self-government has actually been either stolen from us and or was always an illusion that we never actually had. That's a hard thing for most Americans to actually come to terms with, but it's a reality that whether you're in the Tea Party or the Occupy Wall Street movement or anywhere in between, more and more Americans are coming to that realization. You're listening to activist and attorney David Cobb. Today's show, End Corporate Rule, Move to Amend. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. That brings me to the second concept, which is the word sovereignty. 
Now, my friends, if I just had the word the sovereign on the board, who or what would you think of? Quick, the sovereign. King. King. I bet everybody in here, when I said the sovereign, the word that popped into your head was king. That's because sovereignty means the authority to rule. And 500 years ago, the king was the sovereign. The sovereign was the king. Those words literally were synonymous. And where, by the way, did the king claim his sovereignty or authority to rule? God. God. You don't get more legitimate. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. And so, I mean, to say that I get to tell Mark, this fellow right here, how to live his life because who my parents are? I mean, that's laughable. Even better, that I get to say how all of society is going to be organized because of the divine right of kings? Of course you laugh at that. That's ridiculous. That's foolish. That is utterly absurd. And 500 years ago, people just like you and you and me, we not only said it, but we believed it. My friends, I'm asking you to take a a somber and sober moment here to recognize the question of sovereignty, either who has the authority to rule, deeper still, what are the processes and protocols by which rules get made? That may be one of the most important first principle questions that any human being asks of themselves. And, you know, folks, look, I'm a Green Party member, and I'm proud of that, and I'm also proud to say I work in respectful coalition with progressive Democrats on a day-to-day basis. I personally help to bring progressive Democrats of America into the national move to amend coalition. And I also work in coalition with Republicans and Libertarians when I can find common ground. And the blunt truth is when it came to fighting the NDAA or the Patriot Act or, or other assaults on civil liberties, it's frequently Republicans and Libertarians that I find myself in close coalition with. I've worked in coalition with socialists and anarchists uh, that I may not agree with on everything. point I'm making is not so that you'll pat me on the head because I'm a, a coalition builder, but so that you'll appreciate what I mean when I say in my 20 years of social change work, I've never had the privilege or the opportunity to work in coalition with a monarchist. And 500 years ago, that's all there were. And 500 years is the blink of an eye in human history. So when people tell me, oh, we can't amend the Constitution, that's too hard. I think, have you not been paying attention? For goodness sakes, the the fabric of our society throughout all of world history, Throughout U.S. history, profound systemic changes have been made when people like me and you did the work to make the change. And now the text is going to get metaphysical on y'all, so hold on. You ready? We are all individually participating in creating our shared collective reality. Another way to say that is, if enough people think that something is true, if enough people act like it's true, it's true. It's true. And so if it is true that the United States of America is fundamentally racist, sexist, and class oppressive, and if it is true that our social, political, and economic institutions are destroying the planet, and it is true, then I suggest we should start thinking and acting differently. We should start thinking and acting like we are, in fact, in a crisis. You know why we should start thinking and acting like we're in a crisis? Because we are! Because we are! (laughs) And I'll go further still. We should start thinking and acting like we have the sovereign authority to make the changes that are necessary. You know why we should start thinking and acting like that? Because we do. Because we do. I like this crowd. (laughs) That's right. We need to start telling a different story 
a story that is actually coming out of our felt knowledge about how we should be treating each other and this planet and the kind of social, political, and economic institutions that would reflect our best values. This is a very important question, the issue of sovereignty. And that brings me to another topic, which is legal personhood. My friends, please note that I did not write corporate personhood on the board. That's because I want us to understand legal personhood in this context means the ability to assert rights. And because it's legal personhood, very specifically, I mean the ability to assert rights under law. Saying it that way, isn't it obvious that this is not just an intellectual or legal technicality? The question of personhood or who gets to assert rights has been at the very core of most of the fundamental social movements in this country. It matters. It matters a great deal. And our entire history, at least in the United States, has been a struggle around how to define and answer that question. Who gets to assert rights and what does it look like when they do? This is really important. And the last concept that we're going to cover is the word corporation. Please note that corporation is equally important. And as such, I'll ask the same question. From what language does the word corporation derive? It's from Latin. Let's break it down. Corpus means body. And now for extra credit, anybody know the suffix T-I-O-N? It means to have or create or the quality of, the inherent quality. So literally, the word corporation means to have or create body. And in this sense, I mean literally physical body. Because we are taught in law school, and by the way, are there any lawyers in the crowd besides me that would admit it? It's a friendly crowd, y'all. No? Well, I'll just assert that in law school, we are taught that a corporation is a legal fiction. And for example, even if you weren't subjected to law school, but if you've heard that phrase, that a corporation is a legal fiction, even if you couldn't precisely define it, an honest question, if you've heard that a corporation is a legal fiction, please raise your hand, really. Look at this, over half the crowd, hands go popping up. So you've heard a corporation is legal fiction. Corporation is legal fiction. Corporation is legal fiction. My friends, that begs the question. What does the word fiction mean? Not true. Not true. Made up. Literally, I was taught in law school that a corporation is made up because it doesn't actually exist in the physical material world. You know, reality, it doesn't actually exist. But we will pretend like this group of people who have come together, the resources that they gather together, the contractual obligations that they make, the, the, the cultural assumptions, a very complex concept and idea, we will pretend like it's one thing in the material world so that we can treat it a certain way under law. And remember, if enough people think that something is true, if enough people act like it's true, it is true. It is true. Poof. A corporation is a construct. It is created collectively by us and society. That is a very important idea. And the word corporation comes from Latin because the first corporations ever created by the genius of creative, clever human beings occurred during the Roman Republic. Not, by the way, during the Roman Empire. And sometimes I wish we spent more time asking, what happens when a republic devolves into an empire? Because that might be an important conversation in the United States today. Just saying. As the great Texas comedian Bill Hicks would say, I'm just planting seeds right now. Maybe we'll talk about this later. But the point is, the Romans created the construct of a corporation for a reason. For example, y'all heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Right? Here it is, 2,000 years later, and we still say that. Well, check it out. 
that road system was built, designed as and by a Roman corporation. Likewise, the aqueduct system, that amazing bit of engineering that moved water all across the Italian peninsula without electricity, right? Humans are clever. Parenthetically, one of the things that continues to fill me with such optimism and hope and confidence is the absolute knowledge about how clever and creative human beings are. We can solve every single problem that faces us today. We really can. The problem is we don't actually control the institutions and the government to be able to do it. So another way to say it is every problem that we face is in part, if not exclusively, a political problem. But that aqueduct system that I was talking about, it was actually conceived of, designed, built, and operated as a Roman corporation. Likewise, the first universities, the first hospitals, can you guess? Corporation, corporation. Quick pop quiz. What does a road system, a water system, a university, a hospital, what do they all have in common? common good. Everything I just described is in the common good, or another way to say it, the public good. Everything I just talked about, the original corporations all existed to serve the public interest. And the genius of the corporation was to take private money, material, and resources in collaboration with the state to organize those resources for the public good. But what was really genius about it is the state didn't just take the money as a mandatory tax, right? That did happen, but the corporation was unique because it organized private money, material, and resources on a voluntary basis. This, I want to be clear, is a genius concept. So David Cobb is not anti-corporation. The move to amend coalition is not anti-corporation. There have been and continue to this day to be incredibly important, profound, and positive things that are done by human beings uh, organizing themselves privately uh, in a voluntary manner to put to good use. So there is not a problem here with the concept of corporations, but I want to be clear, this is not exactly how the modern transnational corporation is operating, is it? So it's not exactly how the modern transnational corporation is operating, and that's because we have to acknowledge this. The modern transnational corporation actually comes not out of this mindset, but the modern transnational corporation, as we understand it, actually was born as a joint stock company. And they were created during the 14th and 15th century of Europe. You know, the age of discovery. I have to put discovery in imaginary quotation marks, right? Because after all, what did the Europeans discover in the 14th and 15th century? Well, Africa, Asia, later North and South America. Newsflash. There were people living there. They weren't lost. They didn't need to be discovered. So instead, let's just be very explicit and clear. The 14th and 15th century was not the age of discovery at all. It was actually the age of rape and pillage, and plunder, and murder. For me, there's one word that sums it up. It's the age of empire. That's modern imperialism. And this is where it's important because the modern transnational corporation or the joint stock company didn't just accidentally get created during the age of empire. The modern transnational corporation or the joint stock company was created as an intentional, deliberate instrument of empire. They were literally built and designed and operated to facilitate empire. For example, one of the most famous of the early joint stock companies was known as the East India Company. I see you heard of it. Literally designed to destroy the entire 
civilization that had existed at that point in time of the entire subcontinent of India, and not only that, but to destroy the existing institutions so that they could recreate all of society in India to force people to labor and work to steal the resources from their own land so that those resources could be sent back to the shareholders of the East India Company as profit. That was the business model. Another of the early transnational corporations was the Africa Trading Company. Right? The point I'm making is this, my friends. The modern transnational corporation is built upon exploitation and oppression as a business model. You're listening to activist and attorney David Cobb. Today's show, End Corporate Rule, Move to Amend. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And since I'm telling a story and I want to make it one that really makes sense to Americans, I'm going to now fast forward and ask how many colonies in the founding of the United States of America? 13. Come on, everybody knows that, right? 13. So because that was such an easy question, here's my real question. Of those 13 colonies, how many of them were corporations? 11. All of them. It's a trick question. There's a lot of different ways to answer it. Uh, but, but the way I was asking it, I will say all of them because, you see, it took the king to create body known as Massachusetts. So I'm saying the king created Massachusetts. Now, somebody might be saying, that's ridiculous. Massachusetts was already there. But that's why it's a trick question. See, the land was there. The people who lived on the land. The deer and the forest and the streams. You know, physical reality? That was already there. But it took the king to create Massachusetts, to give body to Massachusetts. And the king created Massachusetts by the use of a very specific legal instrument. Anybody know what legal instrument that's called? Nicely done. It's called a charter. And now to illustrate how the king might create Massachusetts, we'll do another exercise. In this exercise, I'll be the king. Why do y'all think I get to be the king in this exercise? (laughs) Because I'm telling the story, right? See how important stories are? Deeper still, see how important it is that we ask who's telling these stories? Because honestly, folks, I think that if we as a people really did the work of asking what are these stories that the corporate media are telling us, either by way of the 30-second and 60-second advertisements, or for that matter, most of the movies and films and music and cultural entertainment that we've got, they're telling a story. And most of their stories are actually based explicitly on exploitation, oppression, or what's really disgusting, so much of these stories are actually built on making us feel bad about ourselves, either our body image or, 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 or anything else, and that the only way that we can actually feel good is if we buy a bunch of their crap, right? Stories matter. And the more effective we get at actually analyzing these stories and then asking if these stories actually reflect our own principles and values, the better off this movement is going to get. But we're going to go back to my story because I get to be the king. And as the king, I'm now going to create Massachusetts with nothing more than a writing instrument, a piece of paper, and the political power that I have. And so I will create Massachusetts. But to be clear, folks, I'm not going to bother with the day-to-day affairs of administering Massachusetts. After all, I'm the king. I've got other people to rape and pillage, which apparently are kingly duties during an empire. But I will now create Massachusetts. But since I won't administer it, I'm going to assign a royal governor 
And now I'm going to quote from the actual original charter that created Massachusetts. I, the king, create Massachusetts, assign a royal governor, and task the royal governor with the legal duty and responsibility, quote, to plant, to rule, and to govern, end quote, this new land on behalf of me, the king, to benefit me, the king, and also to benefit the other shareholders of the joint stock company known as the Massachusetts Bay Trading Company. See, Massachusetts began as a for-profit corporation on the same business model as the East India Company. So too, Virginia was the Virginia Company. Rhode Island was the Rhode Island Providence Plantation. Georgia was a penal corporation. Quick pop quiz, anybody know what skin color the original slaves had who worked the Georgia Penal Corporation? White. White. Listen folks, as a white person myself, I think it's really important that we come to terms with exactly what white supremacy means and what the construct of whiteness actually means. Whiteness is a construct, it was created. And just like the corporation is a construct that was created, whiteness was created for a reason. And bluntly, that reason was to bamboozle white people like me. Right? Whiteness got created. Look, ethnicity is real. And like, for example, my mamma has done the research. I know that I come from Scotch-Irish uh, descent, right, uh, on my mama's side of the family. So, so that's reality. That's real. But this notion of whiteness is a construct. By the way, any other Irish people in the crowd besides me? All right, lots of hands go up. Congratulations. It's only been a couple of less than 200 years that we've been white. <laughs> it's true, right? Right? Today, we can't even get our heads around that, I don't think. But 200 years ago, the Irish were not white, as that term is understood. The point I'm making is these constructs matter. And because I think it's really important, I'm going to go just a little bit further down this uh, analysis to tell you, here's basically how I think whiteness got constructed and why. It goes like this. I personally come from poverty, right? Uh, not just working class, but actual uh, poverty. Now, rural poverty is different than urban poverty. I want to be clear about that, but I grew up in a rural household without a flush toilet, so I understood economic exploitation pretty clear, and I feel like it went something like this. Man, the boss man's got his boot on my neck. This is terrible. I look around, all the other folks that I'm around have the same boot on their neck. This is terrible. This ain't fair. This ain't right. At least I'm white. I'm serious. Whiteness is created to bamboozle working class white people to make us think that just skin color actually lets us in some sort of club, which is not true. Right? It is not true. It is actually meant to confuse us and keep us from actually working in genuine collaboration with people of color and other folks who are equally exploited and oppressed and so forth. If we really understand racism, corporatism, imperialism, these are inextricably linked concepts. And what links them all, and what really links them all is oppression and exploitation. And we've got to understand that the corporation is an instrument of it. It's not the only thing, but it's a very important thing. Now I want to get back to the American story because I want to be clear that when we understand what the role of the corporation was and this royal governor, right, let's be clear that the American revolutionaries were not merely rejecting monarchy as a form of rule, it was also a people's uprising against corporate rule. Because we wouldn't call the royal governor today of a joint stock company a governor, what would we call him? CEO. CEO right? 
So the Boston Tea Party, for example, do y'all think that the Patriots threw all the tea in the harbor that night? No. The Boston Patriots at the Tea Party targeted one specific tea. You know what it was? East India. East India Company tea was the only tea that was destroyed that night. Saying it better, I think it's clear to say that the Boston Tea Party is actually an act of nonviolent civil disobedience targeting a specific bad-acting transnational corporation. Sometimes I wish the current Tea Party supporters and adherents would learn a little history. It might actually be helpful and then see how much common ground we've actually got. Right? And I'm not joking about that. I think it's really a, a, an important uh, lesson to learn. And even more, I want to be clear, the American revolutionaries were not calling for a more socially responsible king. Perhaps today, right? Perhaps today we might also do more than just call for more socially responsible rich people or more socially responsible corporate CEOs. Maybe we could raise our aspirations a little higher and actually say what we're for. Because you know what? The American revolutionaries may not have been calling for a more socially responsible king, but watch how transformation works. Because just a decade before the revolution actually erupted, most of those people who would become revolutionaries were actually writing letters to the king that went something like this. Oh, Father King, we, your humble and obedient children, come before you on bended knee to beg that you intervene on our behalf because the royal governor is administering unfair trade and business rules. It wasn't just a question of taxation without representation. These were unfair business and trade rules because, almighty oh, king, the English Parliament are passing unfair business and trade rules that are benefiting the monopoly known as the East India Company against us, your good, loyal subjects. Quick pop quiz. Anybody want to guess what percentage of the English Parliament passing those laws were shareholders in the English East India Company? 100%. I wonder if that's related. Oh, Father King, would you please intervene on our behalf? It was the most sniveling, groveling language you can imagine. And I don't know about you, but I'm keenly interested in asking, what kind of stories were they telling to each other? What was going on in their heads, in their hearts, in their guts? What happened in one decade, more or less, to convince a whole group of people to stop the sniveling, groveling begging and to get up off their knees and to stand up and to stand up straight? Put their shoulders back, their chin up, look directly at the king, you know, the king who claimed cultural authority from God, to see behind the king the most powerful military the world had ever assembled and said, you all done, get out, we're going to do it different. Because let me tell you something, folks, that process I just described, that process is magic. And I want to be clear that if one person stands up against injustice and oppression, that's a courageous act that deserves to be applauded, acknowledged, and we should be grateful and honor such a person, but that's not magic. Because see, the magic can only be invoked if one person stands up and somebody to her left stands up and then somebody to her right stands up and then there's this collective standing up. But the point is, back to my story, in the revolution, in case you were wondering and on the edge of your seats, the American revolutionaries won. And so a new charter gets written. This new charter will describe the political and legal system. What's that charter called? The Constitution. How many of you have read the Constitution? Be honest. Lots of hands go up. Good. Y'all grade my papers. See if I get this more or less correct. When you read the Constitution in its entirety, I'll tell you you'll see two actors. 
The first actor is the most important actor. In fact, it's so important, it's the first three words. We the, we the people. Folks, all I ever have to do is hold my hand to my ear and folks say, as you have done, we the people. That's because these are hallowed words in this country and they should be. You see, we the people come together to create the second actor, which is government itself. Understood properly, we the people create government. Government is utterly and completely dependent upon us. And to be clear, that's not just a metaphor. It is actual reality. Government does not even pre-exist us. Right now, we decide how to create the government by our very actions. In fact, no less a statesman, a Republican statesman, Abraham Lincoln said, the people have the constitutional right to amend the Constitution or the revolutionary right to alter and abolish it. That's a very powerful and profound way to actually think about sovereignty. So we the people create government. In the constitutional framework, we the people are described as free and sovereign. What does the word sovereign mean again? Able to rule. Able to rule. The authority to rule. The king is not sovereign. We kicked his butt out. But government isn't sovereign either. Government is actually subordinate and accountable. Government is subordinate to whom? The people. The people. Government is accountable to whom? The people. The people. That's got a ring to it, doesn't it? I like how this is going. Let's continue. We the people are free and sovereign because we the people have rights. Government does not have rights. Government only has duties. And as a lawyer, I really want to stop for just a moment to explicitly say the difference between rights and duties is very important. You see, if I have the right to do something, it means I can do it. And I don't need anybody's permission. I don't need the Willett City Council. No. I don't need the Ukiah City Council's permission. I don't need the California State Legislature's permission. I don't need the Federal Congress's permission. Look, man, I'm from Texas. I don't need my mama's permission. Well, not legally. I mean, culturally is a different conversation. But the point is, if you have the right to do something, you can just do it. And you don't need any advanced political permission. And even deeper, if any government, local, state, or federal, tries to infringe upon you exercising your inherent and alienable rights, government's wrong, not you. And you should be able to go into court and overturn any such laws because it's illegitimate under our framework for government to infringe upon your rights. You're listening to activist and attorney David Cobb. Today's show, End Corporate Rule, Move to Amend. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Duties is exactly the opposite. A duty is a responsibility that must be met. And government never has rights over the people. Government only has duties to the people. And where do these duties come from? Well, remember, all power resides with the people. This is a very important idea. And to illustrate it, another quick little pop quiz, folks. What is the population, more or less, of Ukiah, California? 22,000. 22,000? Uh, you said that with some conviction, Rob, so I'm going to say 22,000 people, more or less, in Ukiah, California. They hold all the political power in Ukiah. That's a true statement. I honor that statement. I'll applaud that statement. But I'll tell you this. I don't want to go to a meeting of 22,000 people where we decide where to put stop signs. And I like political meetings. I'm not going to that one. You see, in our, in our governing framework, we the people do hold all the power, 
but we delegate a certain amount of our power to government. Do we delegate all of our power to government? Oh, no. We only delegate enough power to government to perform the duties that we have told them to do. Understood properly, that's what limited government means. Government is limited in its power to perform the duties that we have already told government that they shall perform. And how does government perform those duties or discharge those duties? By writing laws in the public interest. Let's be clear, there's going to be disagreement about what those laws should be, and that's how it should be. The point is, these public laws, we may or may not disagree with them, but they are the law. However, there's one thing that we also have to recognize, and that is that no public law can actually ever violate the private rights of the people who live there. Holy smokes, y'all, Mrs. Armstrong might have been right. Watch this. In 90 seconds, I'm going to do my best to describe how our constitutional Republican form of government is supposed to operate. It goes like this. In the U.S. constitutional framework, we the people are free and sovereign because we hold all the political power. But we delegate a certain amount of our power to government. Government which we will hold subordinate and accountable, and we will charge government, whether at the local, state, or federal level, with certain duties. They will discharge these duties by writing laws in the public interest, but no public law can ever violate the private rights of the free and sovereign people who live there. Ta-da! Isn't that amazing? I mean, isn't that brilliant? Isn't that beautiful? We should try that in this country. This would work. And I'm not even joking, y'all. This is brilliant. This is beautiful. And I'm also not joking that we've never actually tried it. Because before I go one second further waxing poetic about the brilliance and beauty of the U.S. Constitution, a quick time out to ask, in what year was the U.S. Constitution ratified? 1789. Nicely done, 1789. The reason I want the ratification date is so I can be very clear. This becomes the supreme law of the land in 1789. In 1789, who was a legal person? That's a lot of restrictions. Let's do them all. So you have to be white to be a person. You have to be a man to be a person. You have to be a property owner to be a person. You know what percentage of the adult human beings living here actually were legal persons? 10%. 10%? Believe it or not, you're too optimistic. It's actually 5%. This is an amazing statistic. Another way to say it, 95% of the people were not actually persons under the Constitution. Another way to say it is how the late great historian Howard Zinn said it. Howard Zinn said, probably the easiest way to understand the entire arc of U.S. history is as a series of struggles by actual human beings to be defined as persons with rights acknowledged by our Constitution. That's so important. I'm going to say it again because I think it sums it up. The most important way easiest way to see the entire arc of U.S. history is as a series of struggles by actual human beings to be defined legally as persons with rights protected by our Constitution. So now, folks, that we see that this is how our government and our politics are supposed to operate, but we know it doesn't, and now it's time to put the corporation into its proper context. To do it, I want to tell you very quickly, to create a corporation in California today, all it takes is $150 and filling out some paperwork. And as long as your check clears, you know what the Secretary of State will do? Rubber stamp it and issue you what? A charter. A charter. You know how long the charter lasts? Forever. Forever. You know what you can do with a corporate charter under corporation law in California today? Anything legal. 
Anything legal, nicely done. That's actually what the California Corporation Code says. Now, my friends, I take us back to 1789 to share with you what it once took to form a corporate charter in these United States. And this is true, by the way, for the next 50 to 75 years of our history. First, you had to apply not to the Secretary of State, but to the state government, state legislature, right? And it was debated in the lower house and it had to pass by a majority vote. But even if you got the majority vote of the House of Representatives of your state government, you're still not through because now your application goes to the state Senate where they debate it and it has to pass by a majority. But even if you get that done, you're still not through because now it goes to the governor and your application has to be signed. Does that sound anything like a corporate charter today? Of course not. What did I just describe? A law. A law. I just described the lawmaking process. The point I'm making, politically, there was a time in our country where the privilege of limited liability was so controlled that it took an act of state government to even issue the corporate charter. And as you made the application, you had to identify a public need that was not being met by existing business that didn't have the privilege of limited liability. And if you were granted that charter, all you could do was satisfy the public need that you had identified. And if you tried to do any other type of business with your corporation, do you know what happened to that corporate charter? It was revoked. It was rescinded. Corporate charters were routinely rescinded for going what's known in Latin as ultra virus or beyond the authority of why it had been granted. Oh, and by the way, do you think the corporate charters lasted forever? No. One year, five years, seven years, the longest corporate charter ever issued was 20 years. Why? Because that was the longest form that the we the people decided to allow any such entity to have the privilege of limited liability because limited liability corporations are a privilege, not a right. And at the end of that time period, the corporate charter just dissolved. And if you want, the business could continue, but if you wanted limited liability privileges, then you had to apply all over again. Oh, and by the way, even if you were in that uh, restricted time period, even if you were doing the specific narrow thing for which you had been granted your corporate charter, if you ever did anything to violate the public interest, you know what happened? The corporate charter was revoked. Merely for doing anything to act outside the public interest. Honestly, folks, can we imagine a single one of the Fortune 500 corporations could even exist today under those restrictions? No. Now, clearly many small and moderate and even mid-sized corporations would still exist, right? But the huge transnational corporations could not even exist under the terms that the founders actually uh, created because they too had had a fresh taste of what transnational corporations and joint stock imperialist corporations had done. And so they were going to be limited in how often they gave this privilege. And so now, folks, now that we know that it takes an action of state government to create the corporate charter, we understand that the corporate charter can be used to hold the corporation subordinate and accountable. We understand that the corporate charter describes the duties of what a corporation can or cannot do. And as I will say, the corporation should only be allowed to exist if it serves the public interest. Isn't it obvious that a corporation should be here so that it can be under the proper control of the political process? And here comes the punchline, folks. Thank you for your patience. Because when the U.S. Supreme Court, in an act of supreme judicial activism, says even though the word corporation is never used in your constitution, five of us are going to tell 300 million of you from now on we're going to overturn 
law and say that you must treat a corporation as if it's a person with rights, and that perverts the whole thing. See, corporate personhood, or more specifically corporate constitutional rights, is not just an illogical idea, which it is. Corporate constitutional rights is not just a stupid idea, which it is. Corporate constitutional rights steals our sacred right to self-government because it allows corporate lawyers to go into court and overturn democratically enacted laws. And it has been done repeatedly, time and time again, if we take a look at the timeline of personhood rights and powers created by Jan Edwards of Mendocino County and the members of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, you see a history over 200 years of court cases where environmental laws are overturned, public health and public safety laws are overturned, worker protection laws are overturned. All sorts of laws get overturned on the illegitimate idea that a corporation has constitutional rights. It's insane. And what really gets my goat as a lawyer who became a lawyer because I thought that I was going to learn how to help administer justice, what really chops my hide is not only are they stealing our sacred right to self-government, they're legalizing the theft. They're telling us we have to accept it. And not only that, they're telling us that if we want to actually do anything about it, they're going to prescribe to us what we do about it. And they're going to tell us we have to operate within this very narrow field. It's a little bit like those free speech zones. Maybe you've heard of it. It goes something like this. Here's the public space where we're going to actually make decisions or the spectacle where people are going to concern. So if you want to actually agree with what the ruling elite say, here's your space. But if you want to dissent, here's your free speech zone. Come over here. No, we're not through. Keep coming with me over here. The free speech zone is right back here, y'all. Come on back. Let me tell you something, folks. As a lawyer, here's some free legal advice. I hope you'll take it. I believe that my free speech zone is wherever I happen to be standing. I think if we started to conduct ourselves as if we really actually recognized that we were free and sovereign people and that we had the authority to do something, we would do something. And that something, I believe, is represented by the Move to Amend Coalition, a multiracial coalition of groups and individuals from across the country who are coming together with a specific purpose to amend the Constitution to do two things. One, to abolish in its entirety the idea that a corporation has constitutional rights. To be clear, I mean only human beings have constitutional rights. No nonprofit corporation, no for-profit corporation, no artificial entity at all has inherent and alienable constitutional rights. Only human beings do. This is also sometimes referred to as the well-duh demand. Only human beings have constitutional rights. Our second demand is to overturn the equally odious, also court-created idea that money equals speech. Money is not speech, it's property. This doctrine was created in 1974 for the first time in an infamous case called Buckley versus Vallejo that began the process of stripping away our ability to actually protect the integrity of our election process to the point that in the 2010 case of Citizens United, you actually have a situation in which the Supreme Court said that there can be no limits on independent expenditures by the wealthy, the powerful, unions, corporations, foreign corporations, all can spend unlimited amounts of money in independent expenditures to the point that we have lost control even of the ability to protect the integrity of our elections. Yeah. I say, ya basta. 
enough already. It's time for us to do what people before us have done, and that's to build a movement that takes itself seriously. We've got to address the fact that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. The court has illegitimately, inappropriately stolen our sovereign right to self-government. If we're going to build this movement, it has to be a movement that understands that the fact that we have to actually bring all of us together on a shared analysis and with a plan of action. I'm going to conclude with a reminder. I told you at the beginning I was going to tell a story. I asked you to ask yourself, is this story one that only political progressives could hear, or is this a story that people from across the political spectrum would react to? I want to conclude by telling you this. I've given this presentation at Occupy rallies, and I've gotten applause and laughter and enthusiastic support. And you know what else? I've given this presentation at Tea Party rallies, and I get laughter and applause. The only difference is the laughter and applause comes at different places. Thank you very much, and a big shout-out, KPFA, People's Radio, for giving us this opportunity to have this conversation with We the People. You've been listening to activist and attorney David Cobb. Today's show has been End Corporate Rule, Move to Amend. David Cobb is an activist and attorney and was the 2004 Green Party presidential candidate. He is the National Projects Director of Democracy Unlimited and is the principal spokesperson for Move to Amend. Move to Amend is proposing a 28th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States which would abolish in its entirety the idea that a corporation has constitutional rights and overturn the idea that money equals speech. Visit the website for Move to Amend at www.move to amend.org. That's move to amend.org. Or call 707-269-0984. That's 707-269-0984. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments, order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's bl. F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's gunsandbutter.org.